Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Mother Kind podcast. If you are a long-time listener, you may know that throughout August I take a much-needed and well-deserved, I should say, month off recording the podcast and I re-release some of my favourite and most profound episodes from the year before. This episode is no different. In fact, it is one of my favourites ever. It is with the legendary Dr Shafali. I'm sure you know and love her already. Oprah called her the world's most profound parenting coach. Oprah is a massive fan of hers, and so am I. In fact, when I found out I was pregnant with Jessie, The Conscious Parent, which is probably one of my favourites, in fact, it is my favourite parenting book of all time, was the first book that I read and I just knew that I would be following Dr. Shafali's teachings and principles as I raised my family. I absolutely love Dr. Shafali. We talk about what conscious parenting is. For me, conscious parenting is really just seeing becoming a parent as a gateway to learn more about ourselves. That's how I kind of keep it super simple. We talk about the difference between control and connection and how we know when to get out of control. And we talk about controlling and caring, which is something that I sometimes grapple with. You know, when am I caring? When am I controlling? We talk about what it means to awaken. You know, Dr. Shivali talks about parenthood as an awakening. And I ask her, what does that mean? How do we know if we are in the process of awakening? We also talk about the pressure that we put on ourselves. And I love at the end of the interview, we talk about what to do if you're worrying about your children. She has a teenage daughter and I ask her if she ever worries about her and her answer is brilliant. So I hope you really enjoyed the episode. If you've listened to it before, I do hope you listen again because I suspect you will get new things out of it. And if you haven't listened before, I hope you love it. Before we get to the episode, I just want to remind you about the Family Reset Plan. It is my latest offering to parents. We have been through the most challenging collective time as parents through this pandemic and the continued uncertainty. The Reset Plan is your antidote and it is a new set of tools created by myself, Dr. Emma Svanberg, who you may know as the mammologist and a brilliant child psychologist called Dr. Neka Ikiogu. And the three of us have created this five module workshop to help you learn some new tools to handle your own stress and anxiety and worries and fears. How to help you really productively reflect on this time and think about changes that you might want to make in your life going forward. And really importantly, Dr. Neka helps give us some really practical ways that we can support our children emotionally right now. You know, whether they may seem that they're doing fine or they may not be doing fine, these are some incredible ways that we can check in with our children, 
ways that we can support them and also help them with transitions. You know, there's lots of transitions at the moment, back and forth, in and out of lockdown in different areas of the UK and the world. So if you want to know how to help your children make this time a really positive and productive and loving time as opposed to a time that they might remember of kind of stress and fear then grab the reset plan it's only 25 pounds i am going to put it up it was just an introductory price at 25 pounds so grab it now whilst it is just 25 pounds and if you work for the nhs it is totally free for you in reflection of our gratitude for the amazing work that you did and continue to do for our country so here is the episode and i hope you love it Dr. Shafali, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I was just saying to you, this is quite a big moment for me without it sounding like too much of a crazed fan, because your book was the first book that I read when I found out I was pregnant. And then I studied with you, I did your year of manifestation program. And one of the things that I manifested was this podcast. So for you now to be on it feels very special to me. So thank you for making the time this afternoon to chat to us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So let's start at the start. Most of my listeners, they're a pretty conscious, aware group of mothers. They would have heard of your work, but I think it's always really helpful to hear it in your own words. So what is a conscious parent? Well, a conscious parent is one who is intentional about moving away from the traditional paradigm of parenting, where parenting is typically hierarchical and our children are seen as extensions of ourselves. So in conscious parenting, the parent is quite deliberately mindful of the fact that our children are not extensions of ourselves and that they are their own deliberate sovereign, autonomous beings that have come to us both for their guidance and ushering and safety and safekeeping, but also for the sacred task of awakening us. And it's this piece that the parent needs to awaken. The parent needs to equally be raised by the presence of the child that uniquely sets this parent apart from the traditional parent. And it is so different. This is what I love about your work, because it really turns the traditional parenting that we need to fix our children, we need to control our children, totally on its head, doesn't it? What are some of the big resistances that you get? You know, you've been around the world sharing this work for a number of years. What are some of the fears that you see parents coming back at you with when you talk about this? Because it is so different Well, there's great resistance to anything that breaks a new paradigm and breaks new ground. So I first get resistance because it's so new and so different. The second resistance I get is, again, a very ubiquitous human response of not wanting to take accountability. So parents in particular are so defensive. You know, our whole identity is wrapped up in being the parent more than being an usher, a guide, a spiritual ally. So that identification of the parent creates great defensiveness in 
the parent. And so now this paradigm is speaking to the parent having to look at their own inner baggage and look at how they're projecting their own expectations and fantasies onto the children. So this really then riles up that defense mechanism of, well, this is my child and I'm the parent and I get to decide. And nothing I can do is really short of the holy grail in terms of its wisdom and its efficacy. So when the parent comes with that mantle of attachment and that very high degree of self-righteousness, it's extremely hard to get them to be accountable. So that's the second part. And the third thing is that embedded in the traditional paradigm is this very excessive degree of control that parents think they have over this being, again, that is theirs. So to break out of control and to enter this very heart-centered space of attunement and connectivity, to move away from control to connection, is just almost virtually impossible because we've been so embedded ingrained with this notion that we need to be in control. So these are the most typical resistances. You know, it's hard for people to look at themselves, especially in this very intimate dynamic of the parent-child relationship where you've been told you get to raise this person. So finally, you have all this unleashed possession and control and ownership over this other person. Yippee, you know, that's what we wanted all our lives. And now I come along and I say, you can't have it. It's not yours to have. And parents revolt against that. And I think it's really helpful to break down this idea of control because I'm a parent of a nearly four-year-old and I know in certain ways it's my responsibility. I have to hold her hand when I cross the road. I have to make sure that she doesn't burn herself. She doesn't jump up on the table. That's not the control that you're talking about, is it? Can you help people understand the nuance there between parental responsibility and trying to control who our children are? Yeah, well, you've really given a beautiful example and you've kind of delineated it, but we'll delve deeper into it. It's the difference between care and control. And our caring sometimes becomes controlling. So where is that line? The line really is in misunderstanding what is care, what is proper caregiving, what is proper safekeeping, what is proper logic and reason, to now what is this control over their spirits, this domination over their emotional states. The the essence of their beings can never be controlled. Yes, their form, their body, their diet can some ways be managed and we have to feed them, bathe them, allow them to have a safe place to sleep. But we can't control what they eat. We can't control how well they sleep. We can't control if they are anxious. We can't control if they were rejected by a peer. We can't control if they don't take to math or science. You see, so our domination moves very quickly from a sense of caring to a sense of wanting them to be under our domination. And if one is aware and awake and attuned and daring and courageous to look at themselves in the mirror, they will see very clearly how quickly caring can become control. And why do we do that? Why do we have this desire? You talk about this a lot. You know, our children are not our canvases to paint our own desires onto. Where does this come from? Like, why do we do this? (laughs) Well, there are two big reasons. 
which of course are very complex, but for the sake of superficiality and colloquialism, the two big reasons are really because we've been culturally indoctrinated again to think that our children are ours. And with that comes this unmitigated sense of having no boundaries. I am you and therefore you came from me and therefore I get to tell you, you know, it's just this rampant, ravaging, savage approach we have toward our children because we've been indoctrinated culturally to believe they're ours. So they're ours. They're like our shoe. We get to put on the shoe when we want to put on the shoe. And when we don't want to put on the shoe, we don't put on the shoe. So if we tell them to watch TV when it's convenient to us, it's convenient to us. Then when we tell them don't watch TV because it's not convenient to us, we don't let them watch TV and then we get upset with them when they don't listen and then we punish them because we think, hey, you're my shoe. Now I'm speaking very crassly and parents would be like, I'm not like that. I don't treat my child like that. Well, I'm speaking about the symbolism of this unconscious desire we have to treat our children as subordinates, you know, ours and objectify them to some degree. I'm being harsh, but that's the only way I found that parents kind of wake up when they actually don't like what I'm saying, then they pay attention more and then they challenge me. And at least then they begin to think, I hope. And then the second reason is because we grew up without our own connection to our sovereign voice. And so we don't even think to believe that this is an option in life. I was beaten up, so I'll beat you up. I was punished, I'll punish you. I wasn't given a choice of career, so why the hell should you have a choice of career? It's this very subtle brainwashing that we went through and endured and suffer from really in silence and somehow feel justified that because we did, we can make our children do. It doesn't occur to us that we can't really tamper with anybody. You know, not our spouses, not our friends, and certainly not our children and not ourselves. We shouldn't be tampering with our own essence. We should allow our own authentic voice to come out, but we don't. We suppress it. We've lived a life pretty much of complicit subjugation to other people's opinions, other people's values, other people's religious beliefs, other people's traditions, aka our parents mostly. So we don't even think to stop to register that maybe I can set my kid free from my imposition. Can we do that without freeing ourselves first? Not likely, because if we don't appreciate, we don't have to free ourselves, but we have to appreciate how subjugated we have been. And if we appreciate how subjugated we have been, automatically therein starts a process of release on our own path. But we can't reach a final destination of complete liberation. And we don't need to wait for that in order to start freeing our children. We have to appreciate deeply our own suffering. And when we truly become awakened to how we've been playing roles and really kind of lying to our authentic selves for the sake of validation, belonging and approval, then that compassion that we have toward our own suffering will open us up to a compassion toward our children's suffering. And then we will watch ourselves as to how we may be doing exactly what our parents or culture did to us. So if someone's listening... And they're thinking, hmm, I've never been connected to my intuition. I'm in a job that I hate. I've always thought that when I had these external things, I would feel happy. But actually, if I'm honest with myself, I don't feel happy. If someone's having that realization listening right now, which hopefully they might be, where does someone go with that? I mean, this is like the biggest realization one can almost have, right? Which is, gosh, I've been living this life based on someone else's shoulds for me. When you work with clients, what's the first thing that they do with this? Where do they go? 
<laughs> well, first, they, they truly understand that. Like you said, it is the biggest epiphany and you kind of die. It's a shock. It's paralytic shock. It's a deep depression. It's grief, bereavement. And that's why people don't come to that realization because they know if they do, they're dead. Then comes all of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of you go from denial, then you go to anger because you're like, holy shit. Then you go to bargaining, which is you try to, it's DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. These are her five stages. I use it quite a lot to describe this process. Then you bargain, you go, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad because you're trying to fit back into the shoebox that you've been living in all this time. And then you go through a depression. Like, oh my goodness, your skin is shedding and you can't stop it. You know, once you awaken, it's very hard to go back. You try, but you can't go back. And you have a depression. Hopefully you get some help for it. You do my courses, you read some books, you go to health, self-help growth conferences. And then if you're blessed and allow yourself, you know, the blessing comes from yourself. You anoint yourself worthy to accept that this is the human condition. And I, like all others, was prey to the human condition of great subjugation, civility, and blind obedience to rules that are kind of false, lies, and kind of ignorant. And now I will give myself the opportunity to shift my path. And most people do that through pain, through pain of their children, through pain in a breakup of a relationship, through pain of a terminal illness, through pain of death of their parents. Pain, unfortunately, seems to shatter some of the previously fragile defenses that have worked, but now no longer do. So I don't recommend that you think that this is some easy process of, oh, I figured it out. I realized I was living a lie and now I'm ready to awaken. No, it's a process. It's the most important process one can go through. I wish it for everybody, but I certainly wouldn't pretend it's a quick realization and a quick fix. It's now the beginning of a deep grieving of all that could have been but was not, and then a letting go of all the roles that we have adopted, the role of pleaser, the role of fixer, the role of savior, the role of martyr, the role of victim, the role of who or whatever role we put on ourselves, the glue that kept it all together, the achiever, the perfectionist, roles that typically women take on. And then we start to create a new path, which fully and completely honors the authentic voice, where you ask, is this really me or am I blindly following a rule? Is this really me or am I completely hypnotized by fear? Is this really me? And you begin to ask that incessantly. What is true for me? What is true for me? What is true for me? That becomes your mantra. And as you begin to check in with yourself and follow that inner voice, you can't just check in and then betray that inner voice. You have to follow that inner voice. Then your life begins to unfold onto a new trajectory. It's a process. I mean, you did a course with me, which was 52 weeks. I do 52-week courses because it takes at least one year to shift 30, 40 years of baggage. So it's not easy, but it is the most important work we can do. We owe it to ourselves to come out of our slumber and to awaken. And then through that awakening, automatically everyone around us is free. They're not going to necessarily awaken with you. 
So people often think, oh, I'm now on this path. I want everyone to be on this path. You know, I'm meditating. I want everyone to meditate. Nope. When you get on this path, seriously, you realize, oh, I totally understand why nobody else wants to do this. And I free them to awaken when they wish. And you free your children to live their destiny and to find and discover and lose parts and pieces of themselves as they come into their truth. And I think an area that I see which really helps make this practical is around success and grades. Because what I see amongst my peers, and I know for myself, you know, I was really forced and focused on get good grades, get a good job and you'll be happy. And I got good grades, I got a good job and I was utterly miserable. (laughs) So I think that helped me take the pressure off my daughter because I know that when I ticked all those boxes that we're quote unquote supposed to, it didn't make me feel good. So therefore, why would I do the same to her? Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about with this, which is change our idea of what it means to be free, to be happy, to be content? Yeah, you're a beautiful example of having walked the traditional path and you saw that happiness was not a byproduct. And it's not a given. So now you know that even if you do send your kid to school and help us study, you know that it does not equate to happiness. You can still send her to school, still help her with her math, still give her a tutor, still encourage her, maybe even feel worried if she gets C grades. Sure. But you will do it tempered with a wisdom that it is not indicative of unhappiness. It's not indicative of success and it's not indicative of anything permanent. It's an aspect of the moment. It's an aspect of the personality and it's an aspect of life. You've got a daughter, haven't you? How did you come to these realizations? Oprah said that you are the most profound parenting teacher of our time. How did you get to these? Was this through the triggers that you saw once you became a parent yourself? Or did you have all this sorted before you were a parent? No, this is the tragedy. I thought that I had it sorted out, but (laughs) I realized because I was on a path. I was studying psychology. I had been meditating for a decade. And I thought, oh, I have this down. And then when the child came, the child, I call my child the child, when the child came, because I really tried to stay away from saying my child, when that human being came into my life, I realized how little I was prepared spiritually and how undeveloped I was emotionally. I mean, just all that work was to not, I mean, of course it wasn't to not, but it might as well have been because, you know, we don't know what child we're going to get. So we think we're all prepared and I was really prepared. And ultimately, you know, you're back to ground zero because you have to begin again with this human being that has come to you and you have to really start again. I was shocked to see how much unresolved stuff I had. Then I began to have compassion for myself that, of course, you know, what is coming up with this being? How could I have been prepared? Because I never met this being before. It's a love relationship. It's like, whoa, this person is evoking things in me that has never been evoked before. And especially a child, right? Because till then you've been hopefully having kind of adult relationships, which are never really adult. They're all child relationships, but you're not the parent. So now you're really with a child who can really go back, evoke within you those childhood experiences. 
And you say, don't you, you take this one step further, which I love, and it's hard, but you say our children will trigger in us everything that needs to be healed. So traditional parenting tells us when our children trigger us, when they make us angry, we try to control and fix that naughty step, shouting, punishment. You say the absolute opposite, which is no, they are triggering us, showing us where we've still got work to do. Beautiful. Yeah, you're so good. Exactly. You said the whole answer. Traditional parenting says when we're triggered, look outside, fix the child, solve the problem in the child and get very upset with them because how dare they trigger the Zen, righteous, all-knowing or omnipotent parent. So if I'm being triggered as the parent, it's obviously not my fault. It's this darn child's fault. So let's go fix the child. And my approach the approach that I teach says, no, you would only be triggered because you're a hot mess and you have wounds that this poor five-year-old has no idea about. The five-year-old is just being a five-year-old. The 13-year-old is just interested in themselves. The 17-year-old couldn't be bothered about your feelings. So if your feelings and emotions are getting all entangled, it's because you have unmet needs that you need to meet and heal on your own. But so much of our baggage we put onto others, especially our children, expecting them to fix us. And this is a problem. We're so unconscious to the fact that we're full of holes that we can't even conceive that it's us. We just think it's them. I get this totally on a heart level. I really do. But something that I sometimes struggle with myself is we live in this crazy modern society where I live miles from my family. I have quite little support. I'm quite tired. I'm also pregnant. You know, I'm running this business. I have a house to keep. Sometimes it can feel like, and I know this stuff, but sometimes it's like that desire for the quick fix, for the will you just do the thing that I want you to do. How do we help parents like me who are feeling just so overwhelmed sometimes just with the day-to-day reality of everything that we've got to get done? How do we avoid this feeling like an impossible another thing that we have to do? Yeah, well, have compassion. It is an inordinate amount of ridiculous, insane pressure we have living in these nuclear families without support, raising these beings, trying to be professional, trying to look amazing, trying to eat healthy, trying to make money, trying to be sexy and maintain relationships. I mean, this is just insane. We are not supposed to be raising our children in these nuclear pods and over-scheduling ourselves and them to insane levels. So we do it to ourselves. We have children thinking we can have them and raise them quite okay. No, we can't. One child is enough, two is insane, three is ridiculous, four is a downright recipe for disaster. Although I've heard that after three, it's all a shit show, so it doesn't really matter. What I'm just trying to say is that it's a lot of pressure on us women. What are we thinking that we can do all this? Okay, so that's the first level of insanity. No problem. All of us are going to try it. We think we're better than the other mothers. We can do it. Okay, But then on top of that, now we want to take them for violin at the age of two and skiing by the time they're four and teach them sign language by the time they're six and Chinese at seven. Now what are we doing? We're putting all this insane pressure on ourselves and them. And now we're filling our time with ridiculous activities that we think are going to create a well-rounded human being. 
and have a chance at this thing called happiness and success. Now, that is where we need to stop the madness, right? I understand we are a nuclear society. I understand we all are overzealous. We all want to have children. We want to have a couple of children. No problem. But now when you feed into culture's mandate that we need to be overzealous, over-successful, over-perfectionistic, doing 10 activities every week, now we're putting on our plate something that is bound to break our back and our spirits. And that is unnecessary pressure. So if the violin lessons and the skiing and the tutoring, if that doesn't bring a well-rounded child, what does? Tell us what does. How do we raise well-rounded, balanced, conscious. What does that look like? How different does that look to the picture you've just painted? Well, you know, I don't have the answer for what looks like a well-rounded child. I know what doesn't, and I'm not concerned with what does. Let me qualify before that's misrepresented. What I mean by that is I'm not looking to create any kind of child in any one of our lives. I'm not looking to create anything because that's an illusion. We're not creating well-rounded children or badly-rounded children. We are understanding that we are multifaceted, complex beings, souls, if you want to call it, that have destinies and their own life purpose and throb and beat and drum and tempo that we are going to align with. So in my parenting, I was once under the fantasy that my child would go to this very left wing, very liberal, very, you know, free-spirited school. So that was my agenda because I thought that would raise a well-rounded child. This is when I was unconscious. Then when I went to the school, I saw my fantasies crumble because although the school was lovely, my child's tempo would simply not fit in there. And then I had to recalibrate and go, holy shizzles, what I thought was amazing was just my idea And what I really need to do is stop having ideas and stop having expectations that come from what I would have wanted in my childhood and instead align to who my child is. And then I realized that this public school that my kid is in right now, this very ordinary, bustling, mainstream public school is kind of aligned with her. And it was aligned to my budget, really. So I often tell parents, stop fantasizing about what could be and get grounded in your own child's temperament and your own financial temperament and your own cultural temperament in the home. Don't go to a school three hours away if it aligns with your fantasy or don't go to a school three hours away if it aligns to your kid but doesn't align with the rest of the culture of the family. You understand? Alignment has to be multifaceted with your finances, with your time constraints, with the child's temperament. And we kind of put all the pieces together and find the best global fit for all concerned. There is no utopia. So say a parent says, but I found this place that is completely aligned with my kid, but it's not aligned with my schedule guess what? Then it's not aligned, right? Alignment has to be for all who are concerned and it has to work for all. So I don't want parents to have pressure on themselves and they need to find this fantasy because there is none. You send them to that fabulous school and then you realize that that didn't work out three years later because three years later, it stopped being aligned. So you do the best you can always paying attention to what is the global alignment in terms of all people involved. And you kind of see moment by moment, year by year. It's not a static phenomenon. It's a dynamic phenomenon. Mm, And I get that. I get it. You're saying this isn't about how do we raise 
well-rounded children. It's about how do we raise the child in front of us to be the most them. Exactly. And who knows if it's well-rounded? What if the kid in front of you is just completely so sensitive that to all eyes, they look completely like a misfit? Does that mean you're not raising a well-rounded child? No, it means you're aligning to the kid that you have and you're trying to help them manage who they are. Some kids are sensitive, extra sensitive. Some kids are extra neurotypic diverse. Some kids are extra mathematical and oriented towards that and nothing else. Some kids are artists. Some kids are dancers. Some kids are just, you know, whoever they are, you're trying to always align and it's never static. This is another thing that I've learned in my parenting. What we're seeing right now, you know, we have a tendency to flare up, to exaggerate, to catastrophize and think that this is going to be forever. You know, the other day a mother came to me with the concerns about her 11-year-old thinking that, oh my goodness, my kid has no resilience. My kid has no grit. We tend to create labels and definitions long lasting when instead we just need to understand our children are constantly in transition and we cannot foretell who they will become based on who they are now. And neither should that be our aspiration. But it's difficult because that means we have to enter the present moment and just say, this is happening now and I'm going to align with this now and then we're going to see six months from now. And then again, I align with that. And it keeps shifting, right? So our kid could be star baseball players. You've spent all this money on the travel team. You've hired coaches and you've done all this work into their baseball superstardom. And then at the age of 12, they're like, completely disinterested in baseball or they get injured or whatever, something happens and you're devastated. You're devastated because you had an agenda. But if we have an agenda, all we're really doing is setting ourselves up for failure. 1% kind of become the Michael Phelps. Most of the other children kind of fall away because not everybody is supposed to take every activity to its superstardom level. It's just meant to be an activity. And I had this lesson recently. It's so good that you say this because my little girl was very, very shy. And I thought I was being this conscious parent because I said to my husband, she's an introvert. She's shy. You know, I'm not going to push her to go out there and speak to people at parties. I'll just let her be her shy, introverted self. And would you know it, the last three months, she has become the most outgoing, confident, loud little girl talks to anyone. And that was my big lesson. I was like, gosh, I wasn't really being a conscious parent. I thought I was by not forcing her to be different in that moment, but I was still labeling her. I labeled her shy and introverted where she isn't. It's just in that moment, that's how she was presenting. And now three months later, she's presenting totally differently. Yeah. It's so difficult, no, not to label because society has labeled us all the time. And I've done this. I still do it. My daughter's 16. I'm constantly labeling her. And then I'm feeling so regretful that I'm buying into some subscription of her behavior where her behavior is just in the moment. What's the risk when we label our children and their behavior? If someone's nodding along, why is this not an ideal thing to do? What are some of the outcomes that can then happen to children? Well, let's look at some typical labels. You're so good. You're so good. You're such a good girl. You're such a good boy. And then when the kid gets that praise and validation for being good, they're thinking, holy cow, I have to be good a lot because this gives me a lot of attention. So now they're 
putting a lot of clout into being good. And maybe they don't want to be good tomorrow. Maybe they want to rebel and maybe they want to defy. But now we've kind of put them into that box. And I know most women have had that box placed on them. Oh, she's so lovely. She's so mild mannered. Oh, she's so soothing and caring. And sometimes we don't want to be. Sometimes I don't want to be soothing. We don't want to be caring. Sorry, we want to care about ourselves maybe. And then those options get cut away, you know, or the label of bad right, which is the more typical label, then the kid feels unworthy, the kid feels castigated, scorned, shamed, you know, you're so lazy. How about you're so fat? How about you're so stupid, right? I mean, we don't forget these, you know, that we rarely forget the negatives, we typically only forget the positives. And you and I know, we kind of remember every negative thing that has been told to us till now, because they sting. And it's a derogation, it's a put down and makes us feel unworthy. So labels are just very, very common, very natural. I do it every day to myself and others freely and liberally. The only difference is that I've come to see how they come from fear and a mis characterization of what's really happening. What's really happening is that something is just evoking a response in this moment in time, and it is not eternal. It's very hard to live in that moment-to-moment kind of reality. I was nodding when you were saying about that good girl, because that was the label that I got. But what that did was it set me up for, certainly in my early part of my life, seeking that validation outside of me to the cost of my own well-being. I mean, I burnt out when I was 22 because I was seeking that you're so good. It became like a drug. I needed more and more of it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so what I try to help parents with, especially for the bad label, is to see quote-unquote bad behavior as a plea, as a cry for help, as a confusion in our children. You know, my daughter's 16 and a half, and sometimes she'll have outbursts, you know, where she bang the door and says really unthoughtful things. And I've had to train myself to allow for these moments of clouded ignorance or confusion to be part of her development. And so I tell myself, oh, she's just confused or poor thing, she just doesn't know how to express herself or she doesn't understand. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm endorsing it. It just means I don't participate in it. I kind of detach from taking it personally and allow it to have a moment. And most likely the moment passes away. And then our children come back laughing, gleeful, sauntering, but we're still holding on to what just happened, but they've moved on to the next moment then a parent will say, well, shouldn't they have a consequence for how they just talk to us? Well, yes and no. If they have an awareness and they're in the new moment, then we have to kind of embrace the new moment. And of course, as they grow older, we can let them know, well, you know, I don't appreciate how you just spoke to me and I need some time now before I come back to my center. But we can do it in a way that makes them understand the cause and effects of their behavior without shaming them. Listen, I'm talking a lot of philosophy. It's very hard to do, especially when your kids are teenagers. So you have a long way to go, but I'm in the thick of it. So I'm hearing myself say all these Zen things, but I fully empathize with all of us parents who lose it. It's so triggering when our kids in the busyness of our day and our exhaustion simply don't listen and then they're rude about it. How dare they? So I have great empathy, but I'm talking about the ideal. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to think that I'm some 
Zen monk here who never loses her shit. I lose it all the time. I'm just aware that there are other possibilities in the child that I need to attune to and I need to grow up and hold space for that. Particularly with a teenager, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, you know, depression, anxiety, self-harm, ADHD, alcoholism, addiction, tech addiction in that age group, you know, 16 to 21 is almost doubling year on year. And I think that brings with it, I know already I'm projecting some fear into the future. And I know that when I'm fearful, I want to control. Are you experiencing that? Are you worried about those things with your daughter? Because I know so many mothers that I speak to are petrified of these things, particularly if they've had those experiences in their own childhoods or in their extended families. Yeah, I mean, but worry brings about a stagnation. You know, you can spiral in worry. At the end of the day, what does worry do? You're worrying about something in the future and you're robbing yourself of the joy of the present. However, again, I empathize, I understand. And yes, I also worry, but then I have to train my mind to enter the present moment and to understand that each life must be lived. And guess what? All of us are going to have pain. All of us are going to have our heart broken. I mean, the person who hasn't, I feel sorry for them because that is a learning experience. Every one of us is going to experience failure. Everyone is going to be trolled on social media. Everyone is going to not be liked, not be the most popular, not be the prettiest, not be the skinniest. So this is part of life. So when I understand that no matter what I do in my own life, I cannot avoid pain, then I understand that no matter what I do in my child's life, I cannot avoid her pain. So why even try to avoid what's inevitable? The best thing I can do is to be there when I fall. I can be there for myself and be there when my kid falls and to teach them that this is part of life. Pain is unavoidable. This again is one of those huge disconnects, isn't it? Because I know from my own life, I have learned the most from my pain. You know, I burnt out and chose a spiritual life. You know, I had to. So that pain gave me a whole new life. And yet I see it in myself. You know, I so want to protect my daughter from pain. But that doesn't make sense because pain gave me so much. Again, you're right. This twist in our logic that is our blind spot. Because how can we tell our children not to live? That's what we're really saying. Don't live. When we're trying to avoid pain, we're really saying, please don't live. And I've come to see pain as a beautiful shattering of the heart. I mean, I'm not afraid when my daughter sobs and cries or rages and rants. I'm like, yeah, good, 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 good. Feel, feel, feel deeply and you will arrive at wisdom. The pathway to wisdom, besides self-realization and self seeking, which most of us don't do. We do it indirectly through pain. Pain is the harbinger of wisdom. I know at the end of those tears, I know at the end of those three months of grief over a heartache or over the loss of someone, you are going to come out a more wiser, more compassionate, more empathic human being. So why would I rob you of this? I've seen what pain has done to me. It's made me a better human being. You know, I was always kind of scorning of my mother because when I was young, I fell off the bed. So when my daughter was an infant, I said to my mother, how could I fall off the bed under your watch? Like, how could you do this to me? And I couldn't understand how she could be so negligent. And of course, one day I was making the bed. My daughter was on the bed. I just moved to the left and my daughter fell off the bed. And I was in epileptic shock, right? I remember going into the city. I was on a train and just a zombie at what I went through. But 
I went through that experience and sitting on the train, I looked around me and I said, I now relate to every human being here because of their humanity. I just experienced a deeply human moment. And now I will never be on a high horse about this aspect, at least. And I now relate to every folly, foible of every parent and human being out there because I just damaged my daughter's skull. Probably she's got eternal brain damage. I don't know what I did because I was thoughtless and careless. And it can happen to everybody. So right there, as I experienced my greatest mishap, I also opened my heart to have empathy. The greatest empathy I've had is when I've seen myself fall to my knees in pain, in grief, in some sort of awareness that I am a human being. Mm. What I can hear, what I'm just getting on another level, I think, actually talking to you, is that this is not about trying to get it right. Like conscious parenting isn't another thing that we get to win at. It's something that we you know, instead of fixating perpetually outside of ourselves, it's really just as you described on the train, you know, just taking those moments to reflect inwards. And that's it really, isn't it? It is, it is. That's it. And that's all of it. Yes. And so hard for people to understand. It's not about creating a child. It's not about creating anybody. And it's not about getting it right. You're not going to win at conscious parenting. You're only going to become a more humble, more aware, more compassionate, empathic, loving, authentic human being. That's what you're going to get at the end of this. But there's no trophy. There's no little prize that you get to show off to the world with, hey, here's my conscious child. Your child could be utterly unconscious. You know, it's when they wake up, they will wake up. It's all about us awakening our own hearts. Mm, And from there, it starts to feel easier, as you've described, because we're not perpetually trying to fix, control, manage. And that brings with it so much stress and overwhelm, which is what you shared so beautifully. So Dr. Shvali, you have a really exciting live event called Evolve coming up. Can you tell us a bit about that and how people access it? Yeah, if people want to learn more about what I teach and delve deeper into conscious parenting and mindful living, then they can come visit me at my wonderful event Evolve, which is going to be in Long Beach, California. And yes, people come from all over the world. It's for three days, October 18th to the 20th. And then I have a special add-on meditation day, which is just phenomenal. So I invite everyone to come and learn more about this way of thinking and being. And just to add to that, if you can't make it, I would also suggest that you look at some of your programs. Having been through one of your programs, it was a fantastic experience. And I know that you've got them on conscious parenting. I did the one on manifestation. What's the next course that people could join you virtually for, Shafali? Yeah, I'm doing another course. I'm launching it next month. It's called Conscious Parenting in Action. It's about this whole philosophy, but putting it in action. You know, people can check out my website next month and access it. It's a 52-week course that will start in January to elevate your parenting. Fantastic. And if anyone wants to ask about what it's like doing a year with Dr. Shafali, message me and I'll share my experiences because I've been through it and it was brilliant. So thank you. So I wanted to ask you, I asked the same question to everyone at the end of each interview, and I cannot wait to hear your answer, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers and mothers in its broadest sense of the word, what would that one gift be and why? The gift would be to see your children as a gift to you to awaken 
and to release your expectations. This is not about you being a better person. This is not about you being the best at anything. It's really about just allowing yourself to enjoy this being that has come here to teach you. And when you release those expectations and your perfectionism, you truly begin to enjoy your child and slow down, do less, have less things you teach them and more things you learn from them. Mm, that's beautiful. I can already feel myself calming <laughs> just listening to your words. Thank you so much. It's been an honour and I've had many aha moments. So thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. That is for a limited time only. The price will be going up, so get it now while it's just £25. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.